The Chinese government is accused of aggressively targeting Western democracies with disinformation and hostage diplomacy. From Global News, I'm Jeff Semple, and on my new podcast, China Rising, we'll separate fact from fiction and hear from accused spies, whistleblowers, and others caught in the political crossfire. As the pandemic rages across the world and incidents of anti-Asian racism rise, listen to China Rising for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. A listener's note: the following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. Imagine going about your day, minding your own business. Maybe you're out shopping or going for coffee, when all of a sudden you witness something really tragic. Your entire outlook on life would likely change in a heartbeat. Now imagine you saw someone breaking the law. Would you jump in and try to stop it? How far would you be willing to go? It's just something I had never, and I hope I never ever witness again. I'm Nancy Hickst, a crime reporter for Global News. Today on Crime Beat. The story of a young mother who was simply trying to right a wrong. This is the story of Miriam Rashidi. June seventh, two thousand fifteen, was a hot day in Calgary. It felt more like summer than spring. Angela Reese was working in the garden center at a local home improvement store. That morning, she was watering plants. It was a busy day at local garden centers. It seemed the risk of frost or snow was finally over for the season. This particular garden center overlooks six lanes that make up the Trans Canada Highway as it passes through Calgary. It's a major thoroughfare that connects Canada from the Pacific Ocean to the Atlantic, and it's one of the longest roadways of its kind in the world. At about 11 that morning, a frantic scene caught Angela Reese's attention. A large, heavy-duty pickup truck pulled out of a nearby gas station. The truck was headed westbound. It was clearly trying to get away. And there was a woman chasing behind it, but traffic was busy, and the truck was forced to stop at a traffic light, giving the woman a chance to catch up. Angela Reese screamed at the woman. She knew it was a dangerous situation. She yelled for the woman to stop, that she had the license plate number, but the woman didn't stop. Instead. She ran in front of the truck and climbed on top of it. Angela watched as the truck accelerated. What happened next was so horrific. Reese had to turn away. She'll never forget the awful sound she heard. It sounded like a branch cracking. Confirmation of what she feared would happen. At that same time, Sherry White Vernon was shopping for flowers at the garden center. She heard Angela's screams. 
The flowers hanging in the store blocked her view, but she could hear a vehicle accelerating. I was looking at a plant, deciding whether to buy it, and then I looked up because I thought, well, he's accelerating, the truck must be moving, and then that's where I saw it come into my view was the truck and then the woman on top. She's on the hood with her stomach on the hood, and she's hanging on to where the hood meets the wipers and the, and the windshield, so she had her hands cupped into hanging on to the hood, and she's looking directly into his eyes. Sherry White Vernon vividly remembers that moment. That image of a woman hanging on the hood of the truck is burned in her brain. I had a Gerber daisy in my hand and I dropped it. Because I just, I remember, because it's all very quick. This is like seconds. And I sort of go, why, how did she end up there? That's not safe. She won't be able to hang on. And so I dropped the plant. It hit my foot. And then, um, and I just stared because in those seconds, um, he, because there were other cars in the lanes, he took an abrupt turn, like the wheel, the vehicle goes abruptly to the right, like you're going to do a lane change. And I, and I remember saying to myself, you can't do that, there's no room. And then, and, and then how is she going to hang on? And that's when she lost control, she couldn't hang on anymore. And she, her foot, I remember her foot getting caught in the wheel rim there where the, because um, trucks have that big wheel bend and the, the rim, and then her foot got caught and got pulled down onto the con- onto the street, and he kept on going. It, it just was extremely fast. Like you sort of almost stand there and doubt that that happened because it happened so quickly, but it did. Because one vehicle continued and and drove around her. I don't know why. And so. But it's one of those moments like, was that real? Is that so he, whoever the driver was, went around this woman. Another guy got out and stopped traffic. And then as I'm this is all while I'm dialing in 911, and there were so many of us that were dialing, I got put on hold. Sherry said the truck eventually turned off the main drag and headed north on a side road. It was after we'd all done our witness statements and we started to talk, because I made an assumption it was a fight between a couple. And for whatever reason, she ended up on the hood and they're fighting. I didn't know that it had started at the gas station till afterwards. So we were all kind of separated and had to write our statements. And then, you know, we were all kind of shooken up. So we started to just sort of talk with each other and how are you, how are you, and, and one woman started to talk about how it had started at the gas station, and he had gassed up, and she was an attendant. There were a lot of witnesses, like Shaden Roll, who was driving to a rugby year-end party. He stopped to let a Ford F-350 truck into traffic from a nearby gas station. He couldn't believe what happened next. No, I honestly believe that there was directed effort to hit her but yeah no there was no swerving away there was no uh there's nothing but he accelerated hit the brakes and then she rolled forward off the hood and then he accelerated again emmett yang was also stopped in traffic when it all unfolded 
and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I thought that it looked a, a little weirder that this, this, this lady was climbing on the hood of a car, and then after that, you know, you see someone ran over, and, and uh, right behind you, it's, it's a little shocking. I firmly believe as soon as the light turned green, he hit the gas, and she fell off, and then he drove over her. Emmett was one of two drivers who followed the truck as it fled the scene. At times, he had to drive in excess of 120 kilometers an hour just to try to catch up with the truck. He broke down as he explained he had to stop following. The pursuit was just too dangerous. The truck entered a residential neighborhood and there were children nearby. As the truck disappeared, other witnesses rushed to the woman's aid, including a doctor. The victim's injuries were severe. Though she was breathing, she wasn't conscious. Good evening. A 35-year-old Calgary woman was rushed to hospital today after she was struck by a pickup truck on 16th Avenue near North Hill Mall. Police are now searching for the driver responsible as he fled the scene right afterward. As the manhunt for the driver began, police revealed the reason why the woman was chasing down the truck. The victim worked at the gas station. She was trying to stop the driver of the truck from stealing a tank of gas. Really devastating because you look at this employee who uh, she's doing her job, she's doing you know the best she can out there, and she puts her life in front of, well, major danger there. Great heroics, but that's something that we don't want everyone to do. I'm sure you're wondering why anyone would put their life in danger for a tank of gas. But that's just the kind of woman Miriam Rashidi was. She always wanted to do the right thing. Miriam Rashidi was smart, driven, and focused. She attended Sharif University of Technology in Iran and graduated with a degree in chemical engineering. Soon after, she got a job as a process engineer in the oil and gas industry in Tehran. That's where Miriam met Arazu Mashayeki. It was uh, my, my first day at work um, after graduation. So uh, when they uh, gave me the desk that I was supposed to be based at, um, she was sitting in the next cubicle, next, next uh, desk. So that's where I met her the first time. And we were in the same room. So um, she started helping me getting settled uh, in the new company. That's how I met uh, Marianne. She was a confident, very focused, quiet person at work. But there was another co-worker who caught Miriam's attention. His name was Ahmad Narani Shalow. I know they fell in love. <laughs> That's uh, how it happened. So uh, they kind of worked together a little bit. That's how they met. And then they fell in love, decided to, to get married. Miriam and Ahmad had it all. Great jobs, they were enjoying married life, and before long, they had a son. Karosh was a bright-eyed little boy, and he became the center of their universe. In theory, life seemed perfect. But Miriam and Ahmad wanted more than life in Iran could offer. They wanted more freedom and more opportunities, especially for their son. 
Miriam's friend Arazu had moved to Canada a few years earlier, so she reached out to ask for advice. So um, it was definitely for a better life. Not only for herself, it was mostly for Kurosh. She wanted better opportunities um, for her son. That is why, because I, when she asked me about the life uh, condition and the work situation here in Canada, I tried to explain her that uh, what difficulties she may have at the beginning to find a job, land on a job successfully, but she was willing to deal with all of it because of her son. Miriam and Ahmad were well aware there would be challenges in moving to a new country. It would mean giving up really great jobs in Iran and becoming more fluent in English. But with nearly a decade of professional experience, they felt confident they would land on their feet, and the benefits their son would enjoy would make it all worthwhile. So in late 2014, Miriam and Ahmad made the move to Canada. They made a brief stop in Montreal, but soon after moved to Calgary, where they would build a new life. As hoped, their work experience paid off. They landed jobs at an oil and gas company. What the couple didn't foresee was a downturn in the economy and the impact it would have on their lives. Calgary had been booming for several years, thanks to higher oil prices. But a sudden drop in the world oil price changed everything. To put this into perspective, so you understand just how significant this was, the price of oil dropped from over $100 a barrel in June 2014 to less than $50 a barrel in January 2015. Companies were forced to make major cuts. It was a devastating time in Calgary, and the economy here still hasn't fully recovered. Both Miriam and Ahmad were laid off. We wanted to begin a better, better life, and we wanted to find a better job. But unfortunately, we lost both of them. That's Ahmad. He told me they were devastated by the loss of their jobs. They needed the money. They had rent to pay and a son to care for. Desperate to support her family, Miriam took a job she was significantly overqualified for, a job at a local gas station. Sunday, June 7, 2015, would mark Miriam's fourth shift at the Centex gas station, located along the Trans-Canada Highway. Miriam said goodbye to Ahmad and Karosh and went off to work. That's the last time they would get to talk to Miriam. Just hours later, they would learn Miriam was taken by ambulance to the hospital. They rushed to be by her side, but her injuries were too severe. Miriam couldn't survive. Two days later, she died in hospital. That's when I first met Miriam's husband, Ahmad. She was the best thing that I had. She was a kind mom. She was very responsible. The newly widowed father was overcome with grief. 
their son Karosh was only six years old, and Ahmad struggled to help him understand what had happened. Right now, I'm worried about of my son because he asked me, where is mom? Why, why, why my mom died? I don't know what, uh, what should I tell him. The Calgary Iranian community rallied around Ahmad. It's very difficult for him now. He has to be mom and dad. That's Arazu's husband, Amin. He was a huge support to Ahmad. The day of Miriam's funeral was especially difficult, and Ahmad was overcome with emotion. His eyes were red and swollen. He was completely broken. The funeral chapel was filled to capacity. Among the mourners, the police officers who investigated Miriam's death. Ahmad spoke through a translator. To God we belong, and to him we shall return. My son Kurush and I would like to express our heartfelt gratitude for your presence here. She's not here to make it to the end. The journey we both began four years ago. Maryam was only 36 years old. We challenged all the barriers to immigrate to Canada with enthusiasm. Karosh didn't attend the funeral, but two of his teachers were there. Karosh is a wonderful boy. He came into our class as a quiet and shy person, but he has been a wonderful blessing to all of us. And he is just amazingly brave and bright. And we wish the best for him and for his family. We, you know, we met Mariam on a couple of occasions, but didn't can't say that we knew her as well as many of you. But what we know about her son, Karash, is that he is kind and he is compassionate and he is bright and smart and loving and he is all of those things because his mother was all of those things and because his father is all of those things. So I think that their beautiful son is such a testimony to what an amazing family they are and I just think it's very commendable how they have dealt with this horrible situation with so much courage and grace and compassion. Um, and Korash has been coming to school and he is a symbol of, of hope and he is a symbol of courage and and he's amazing and we feel lucky to, to be his teachers. So thank you for having us here today. I can tell you there wasn't a dry eye in the room. And what happened next pushed Ahmad to the breaking point. He sobbed, standing at the front of the chapel, his cell phone held up to the microphone. Miriam's father spoke to the room on the phone from Iran. Ahmad broke down. It was just too much for him. He put his hands on her casket as it was taken out of the room. He didn't want to let it go. After the service, Ahmad asked to meet with me. Tears rolled down his face as he spoke to me about Karosh. 
He said his son didn't understand death, and he didn't know how to help him. He thinks dying is temporary. Actually, he knows his mom has died. But yesterday he told me, I will come back when Maman become alive. He speaks uh, about his mom and, uh, yeah, he, ta- he, he says to me, Dad, Dad, I missed Mom. At the end of the funeral, Calgary police officers turned on their lights and sirens. This is something that's not that common, but it's also not that unusual. It's decided on a case-by-case basis. In this instance, the inspector of the Calgary Police Traffic Section made the decision to provide a full police escort, not only to show support for the victim's family, but also to address possible safety concerns, given the large and emotionally charged turnout. The only solace for Ahmad was learning her death would help other people. We decided to to do body uh, body organ donation at the third day uh, that uh, Maryam was in coma. And uh, today uh, I received a call from hospital that and they told me that uh, Maryam's uh, organs uh, was wonderful, was okay for for doing donation. Miriam's organ donations would help six people. I'm glad about that, uh, uh, that six people can, uh, can survive, and it's enough uh, for me and uh, I think for Miriam, it's enough for, yeah, it makes me happy. But learning to go through life without Miriam was unbearable. Everything reminded Ahmad and Karosh of her. That included the small basement suite in Calgary they called home. Two weeks after Miriam's death, I met up with Ahmad again, this time at the Calgary International Airport. This was also the first time I met Karosh. He was a sweet little boy, quiet and extremely polite. He was a huge fan of the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, He wore a Michelangelo t-shirt, and he carried a page from a coloring book with Donatello perfectly filled in. He also had sunglasses with images of all four of the mutant superheroes. And he carried some toy nunchucks, Michelangelo's weapon of choice. He stayed close to his father. It was clear he adored his dad. Ahmad told me about the last time they were at the airport. It was a stark contrast to this day. That was a time of happiness and excitement as the family of three arrived in Calgary, the day their new life was set to begin. It's very difficult for me and I need to leave this place for a, for a while. I loved her. Karosh climbed onto the luggage cart, and off they went to Iran, where they would be surrounded by family. As you might imagine, the man who was willing to drive over Miriam for a tank of gas, $113 worth of fuel, was not about to turn himself in to police. 
The truck was found abandoned, and police tracked the driver and passenger to a house in northwest Calgary. I just came home one day and, like, there's a bunch of cops outside my house. Nevada Bain was friends with the driver. My friend asked if he could stay here for a bit because he had nowhere to go because he got kicked out. And my mom said it was okay for him just to, like, stop by and have a place to sleep. Bain said she hadn't seen him for a few days and was shocked to find her house surrounded by police with her friend inside refusing to come out. I find that really stupid, to be honest. Like, the fact that he could just stay in the house and, like, not have told anybody is, just puts, like, a lot of other people at danger. The standoff lasted several hours. Finally, the driver gave himself up. I honestly feel really bad for the family, especially because, like, because they just moved here and everything. Joshua Mitchell was charged with criminal negligence causing death, hit and run causing death, and dangerous driving causing death. He swore at photographers as he was escorted by police through the alley to arrest processing. The man accused in the death of a gas station worker made a brief appearance in court today. The 20-year-old was out on bail when the fatal hit and run that killed Miriam Rashidi happened. Nancy Hickst was at court today and brings us the latest. The 20-year-old appeared in court Thursday morning via CCTV from the Remand Centre. It turns out he's no stranger to police. He was out on bail, accused in an unrelated dangerous driving incident from January of this year when Sunday's hit and run happened. Mitchell also has outstanding charges of possession of stolen property and fraud. He wasn't even allowed to be in a vehicle without the registered owner. Mitchell's charges were later upgraded. He was accused of second-degree murder. But the conduct was so egregious in this case that I was satisfied that it should be branded as a homicide because really that's what it was. And then when we get to homicide, you've got the choice between murder or manslaughter. And it was the Crown's view that there was a strong argument to be made that Mitchell was prepared to do anything to get away, including killing Miriam. That's Jonathan Hack, the man who prosecuted this case. He's recently retired from working for Alberta Justice. He has more than 30 years' experience. He's taught at the FBI Academy and still teaches law around the world. The Crown decided to fast-track Joshua Mitchell's case. He would go straight to trial without a preliminary inquiry. On April 24, 2017, nearly two years after Miriam Rashidi was killed, jurors began hearing evidence against Mitchell. Joshua Mitchell was a 20-year-old who didn't really do that much other than commit petty crimes. And one of the things that he and his friends liked to do was walk up and down the street and look for vehicles that were unlocked. And oftentimes they would steal things from inside the vehicle. A few days before this incident, so on June 1st, 2015, uh, Joshua Mitchell and some friends were doing this very thing in Airdrie and they had come across a truck 
that was unlocked and that uh, had its keys in it. The truck was still hooked up to a trailer with a boat on it. And so Mitchell stole the 2006 Ford F-350 truck from outside of its owner's residence and the boat. And uh, they later abandoned the boat, uh, but used the truck for the next few days, primarily for joyriding. And then every day or two, they would steal fuel uh, to keep the truck running. Mitchell used the truck to joyride for six days. And as you might imagine, he went through a lot of fuel. But he had a system all worked out. He would fill up and take off without paying. Gas and dash. On June 7th, 2015, Mitchell was out driving around and he had one of his buddies along with him, Braden Brown. When they got to the Centex, Braden Brown, who was the teenage passenger, got out of the vehicle, walked around to the driver's side, and proceeded to fill up the truck's fuel tank with what amounted to $113.23 worth of diesel fuel. While he was filling it up, Mitchell had told him that he wasn't going to pay for the fuel. And so what Brown did as soon as he had filled up the truck he immediately got into the left rear door of the truck, and then Mitchell immediately took off. Mitchell thought he was in the clear. He wasn't expecting a clerk who would try to make him pay for his fuel. One of the key pieces of evidence presented to jurors was a videotaped confession. Right after his arrest, Mitchell was taken to Calgary Police Headquarters, where he was interviewed by homicide detective Ray Bangloy. You'll remember Detective Bangloy from last season of Crime Beat, the story of Shannon Medill. He's a veteran police investigator and well-known for his ability to get people to open up in an interview. Bangloy took some time to make small talk and make sure Mitchell knew his rights. Uh, you don't have to tell me anything, okay? But anything you do say can be used as evidence. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah. What does that mean to you? Just so I know you got it. Anything that I say will be used in court against me. Bangloy then left to get Mitchell a coffee and a bagel. They ate breakfast together in the interview room. Do you know any nicknames? I guess Josh is kind of a short name. But do you go by Joshua or Josh? Josh. January 2nd, 1995. It's your 20, right? Yeah. Just a baby. I graduated a year before you were born. 1994. That's sad, I'm getting old. So you were born in a race here in Calgary? What part of town? All over. As you can hear, Bangloy took his time to make sure Mitchell felt comfortable. They talked a bit about his family. My mom's sick, so she doesn't work. My dad takes care of my mom. What, uh, what type of sickness does she have? I don't know. It started when I left. Do you know what it is? What is she? What kind of symptoms? I just having a mental breakdown because my grandma's in the hospital. 
Mitchell told the officer he's the second youngest of four kids. He said his life was derailed by problems at home and ended up quitting school. Because shit went bad, my parents and I had to move out. No. Had to get a job and it didn't. Going to school and working full time wasn't really mm-hmm. working. Was it really that bad? Did you have to move on? Yeah. Yeah. The prosecutor was the first to admit Mitchell had a challenging upbringing. The evidence before the court showed that from the age of 12, uh, he got involved in substance abuse and uh, very challenging home environment. And it certainly did not set himself up well uh, for productive life. And he fell into a, a spiral of substance abuse and criminality that uh, led him to this life of committing petty crimes, uh, although not as serious as we ultimately came to prosecute. But if you're feeling sympathy for Mitchell, you need to hear what else he told Detective Bangloy. At one point, you're jumping on the hood. What the hell are you thinking at this point? This bitch is nuts. This bitch is nuts. That's how Mitchell described Miriam Rashidi. I kept reversing to go around and she kept fucking jumping in front of the car. Mitchell said he reversed to go around her, but she kept jumping in front of him. She jumped on it and like going forward. While you were going forward, how fast were you going? Like 40, she jumps on the hood. Mitchell told the detective he didn't mean to hurt anybody that day. He said he contemplated using bear spray, but instead, he decided to try and drive away. She grabs on and I speed forward. And eventually she goes under. Yeah, I think so, yeah. When you actually sped forward, how fast were you going until she actually fell off? Roughly. How fast was I going? Yeah, when she, the last time she fell off. Almost 100. Holy shit, so how far away from Centex gas are you? At the end of the Home Depot. At the beginning of the Home Depot, by the time you hit the the end of the Home Depot, we're going 110. And then she eventually falls off. I don't know when the fuck she fell off. She just kind of lets go. Is she screaming or anything? I guess it's hard to move with her. I have no clue. So where do you get a noisy truck? So where do you guys go after that? Get the fuck out of there. So I hammered the gas. We were going 160 down the road. The interview ended with the detective suggesting Mitchell write a letter, apologizing to Miriam Rashidi's family. This tactic is used by detectives in a lot of cases to give a second written confession in the offender's own words. In this case, Mitchell was left alone in the room to take his time and put his own thoughts and feelings down on paper. He wrote, I'm really sorry this had to happen to your family. It shouldn't have happened. We tried to avoid injury to anyone. I feel so bad that this happened. I've never hurt anyone physically in my life. This is the first. I can't live with myself knowing what I've done to your family. (laughs) 
Miriam Rashidi's reaction to the gas and dash was captured on CCTV surveillance video. Yeah, the video was powerful evidence because, first of all, it showed the gas theft. But it was powerful because we didn't have a witness to tell us what Miriam observed in the store or a witness to tell us that she ran after the truck. We knew later that she had caught up to the truck, but we didn't have witnesses that could tell us that she observed it and that she ran after the truck. But the video camera, being an unbiased and objective witness, told us that. On June 7, 2015, business was steady. Miriam walked back and forth behind the till and watched out the window as customers filled. She also kept an eye on the computer as it calculated the price of each tank of gas. Just before 11 that morning, the Burgundy Ford F-350 pulled in and began filling up with diesel. The total cost was $113.23. Miriam kept watching for the customer to come in and pay. But something was off. She watched as the passenger who filled the tank jumped in the truck. Miriam had a look of panic on her face as she ran out of the store and chased after the truck. Soon, she was out of sight of the surveillance camera. Ten eyewitnesses testified during the trial, including Sherry White Vernon. I think in that moment when she was hanging on and looking at him, and I just wanted to to let him know her husband that she she was hanging on so hard like she wanted to live and, and I don't know why that was important that I think he knew that but if he knew her he probably knew that as well that she just really she tried to stay alive and he just that was not his intention that day Sherry said testifying was extremely difficult It took her right back to that day and forced her to relive the trauma all over again. But it was the moment Sherry made eye contact with the accused that really bothers her. So I was very upset and emotional giving testimony. It was hard. I kind of had to stop a couple times. But I remember looking over at him and he had this smirk on his face. And I... Yeah, I was angry. And I'm like, you have no right to have a smirk. And I couldn't, I thought, are you smirking at me because this is really hard and I'm and I'm upset and crying? Or are you smirking because this is all a joke? Or, I don't know, like, I, maybe this will sound weird, but I just thought, I was angry when I walked out and I saw that smirk and I just thought, you are not worthy of my time. And I... And you talk about putting it in a safe place, right? I talk about that. And I think part of it was, I think I wanted to honor her more and think about her. And I thought, I'm not thinking about you anymore. You are not taking any more air or any more time out of my brain because what you did was wrong. It was insensitive. And that smirk just tells me you don't care. And at any point, you could have just stopped the car. Just hit the brakes on that truck. And so you can, I don't know, I feel like you can let the anger and the what-ifs 
consume you and has thought, I'm not giving you any more time. You get no more airtime in my life. The passenger in Mitchell's stolen truck, Braden Brown, was also a key witness in the trial. And I remember when Brown testified, he said that he saw a look of fear in Rashidi's eyes. And on the last attempt to get her off the vehicle, uh, Miriam lost her grip on the truck and she fell in front of the truck. Uh, Mitchell drove forward knowing that she was in danger of being run over. And indeed, he ran over her with the right front tire and both rear dual wheels on the right side of the truck. Defense conceded Mitchell stole the Ford F-350 truck he was driving when Miriam Rashidi was hit and admitted to the theft of $113 worth of fuel. He even admitted to the charge of hit and run. But defense insisted it was manslaughter, not murder. But Jonathan Hack told jurors Miriam Rashidi's death was no accident. He told them Mitchell had the power of life and death over Miriam, and he chose death. The jury deliberated for about 10 and a half hours before coming back with a verdict. Now from Global Calgary, the News Hour. Calgary man has been convicted of manslaughter in a fatal gas and dash case. Joshua Mitchell admitted stealing $113 worth of gas and running over and killing a gas station attendant. Tonight, her widower says justice has not been served. Nancy Hicks is live at the courthouse. and Nancy, the Crown wanted second-degree murder. The jury, though, found Mitchell guilty of the lesser charge. Several of the jurors were in tears as the decision was delivered today. This was quite obviously a very difficult decision for them to make. And in the end, they found that this was manslaughter, not murder. That comes down to intent, and the jury didn't believe Mitchell intended to kill Rashidi. Rashidi's husband was devastated to hear the verdict and told Global News, I feel like justice was not served. I am very disappointed and I don't know what to tell my son in the future. We immigrated to live, not to die. In Canada, we're not allowed to talk to jurors, so we never know why they decide what they decide. I think the fact that this was a fuel theft, that it was somewhat of a lark, and that he was really quite a a young kid, would have played heavily in the minds of the jury. And I think in the end, what the jury must have decided is that this just doesn't seem like a murder to me. They couldn't see labeling him as a murderer, but they certainly had no difficulty finding it to be an unintentional homicide or manslaughter. Mitchell was sentenced to 11 years in prison. He's eligible for full parole in 2020, a month shy of the fifth anniversary of Miriam's death. The impact of what Mitchell did that day has had far-reaching effects. The witnesses in this case were just normal people going about their everyday lives. Each of them has been impacted, traumatized by what they saw. Yeah, when people are impacted, 
it's not a past tense. I think I still am impacted by it. It's still, I mean, this conversation today will sit with me for a few days as I kind of sort and sift through things. And so, yeah, when you witness something like that, um, obviously the family feels the profound impact, but I'm feeling it. Sherry White Vernon said she has a whole new view of what people are capable of. So I look at people and I think, well, what's your story? And so if you get triggered or if you say the wrong thing or and then I think, okay, so I'm cautious about what you say. It's like road rage when someone's up your tail and, you know, and some people flip the bird. Well, now it's like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to do that because you just don't know what anybody's going to do. So I give them the peace sign, which sometimes makes them even more <laughs> But no one was more impacted than Miriam Rashidi's husband, Ahmad Norani Shalow. Miriam's husband uh, struck me as just a, a wonderful man, but a man that was truly empty, save for his son. Ahmad wasn't able to attend the trial. But every day, he would send me a message, and I would update him on the evidence that came out and send him links to my stories. I kept all those messages back and forth. Ahmad was frustrated with the verdict. He did not see it as justice for Miriam. By then, he had tried, to some extent, to move forward. He wanted Karosh to be happy. He moved to Vancouver, and remarried. He said his son needed a mother, and his new wife was being exactly that to Karosh. Ahmad said they were happy, but he would never forget his Miriam. You might think this is where this story ended. A husband and a son left heartbroken, but trying to push forward. But this case took one final tragic turn. On June 7th, 2017, two years to the day that Miriam was hit, there was a special memorial planned in Calgary. Ahmad, his new wife, and Karosh got into their car and headed east. They needed to be in Calgary for the anniversary, but they never made it. They were involved in a crash. Ahmad Norani Shalow died on the anniversary of Miriam's fatal hit and run. The boy, whose mother and father moved to Canada so he could have a better life, was now without either parent. Karosh now lives with his stepmother, we still stay in touch. She told me they're doing much better. Karosh is now in grade five. She sent me a recent photo of him. He's much taller and he looks happy. Karosh's stepmother is honoring exactly what his parents had wanted for him by raising him in Canada. Thank you for joining me and letting me share Miriam's story with you. If this is your first time listening to Crime Beat, please go back and listen to the previous episodes. 
These are all such important cases. Crime Beat is written and produced by me, Nancy Hickst, with producer Dila Velasquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Special thanks to photographer-editor Danny Lantella for his work on this episode. And thanks to Chris Bassett, the National Director of Content and Editorial Standards for Global News. I would love to have you tell a friend about this podcast, and you can help me share these important stories by rating and reviewing Crime Beat on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you have a question about one of the episodes or about crime reporting in general, send them my way. You can send me a message on Twitter at Nancy Hickst, on Facebook at Nancy Hickst Crime Beat, and I'd love to have you join me for added content on Instagram at Nancy.Hickst. That's N-A-N-C-Y dot H-I-X-T. Thanks again for listening. Please join me next time.